Hello, captives and captive friends, and welcome to episode 51 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by Legacy Specialists R&Q and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. We had quite the response to GCP 50, featuring Mike Foley of Captive Resources and Dan Scheid from Group Captive member Ziegler Auto Group. And it really shows the appetite for information on Group Captives currently in the market, which is is really great to see. We don't often talk about Group Captives on the Global Captive Podcast, so I can assure listeners we will have much more Group Captive content throughout this year. Before we start this episode, though, I will just remind listeners that if you haven't already, I strongly recommend downloading or accessing the latest GCP Insights e-magazine edition. Lots of exclusive information on new captive formations, the the bubbling trend with regards to home domiciling in Europe and regional focuses on Latin America and Asia Pacific. 831B developments in the United States and of course our good friend Commissioner Mike Creedler in Washington State he's had his captive bill signed now uh, and we, we, we kind of analyze all of that in the latest edition but joining me today as our guest co-host is another good captive friend of mine that I'm ashamed to have only just got onto GCP and that is David Stebbing a consultant actuary and director of strategic risk consulting at Willis Towers Watson. Dave welcome to the pod. Thank you very much, Richard. Delighted to be on. Good, good, good to have you on. And we have loads of interesting stuff to get into with Dave shortly, particularly around the areas of data and analytics, capital optimization, and how captures can do a lot better in these areas. But we have two other excellent guests due to join us as well. I'm very excited that Janae's Markland, Director of Business Risk and Insurance at Facebook, will be our captive owner interview. Really, really excited to have Janae's on. And uh, those readers of GCP Insights will have learned last month that the social network had set up a Hawaii captive in December and Janae's is going to give us the full lowdown on that decision and how they plan to use the captive in the short to medium term and then in the second half of the episode we'll be joined by James Rayner global relationship leader at Crawford and Company who gives us a really good 101 on captive claims how they work and the keys to a successful claims strategy but now we can finally get to Dave who's been sitting there patiently as I, as I talk through all of that housekeeping. Dave lots to get through uh, but perhaps a, a nice way to introduce yourself uh, to our listeners is by telling us a little bit about your role and key areas of focus uh, when it comes to captives. Great thanks Richard. Yep so I'm at Willis Towers Watson. I've been here around 10 years now which is absolutely flown by. I work in our risk and analytics um, division within our corporate risk uh, sector and I lead our actuarial and analytics offering to captive and corporate clients. Uh, specifically when it comes to captives there's really two main areas uh, for that. Really the first one is the regulatory elements so anything to do with reserving capital Solvency 2, for which we, we, we have a lot of actuarial function appointments um, around Europe. And really the second part, which is quite different and perhaps more more interesting, would be around what we call the optimization area. So modelling of risk and helping captives define their optimal programme and how they can utilise uh, their capital most efficiently, which, as you can imagine, is, is top of the agenda right now. We hear the term modeling premiums mentioned a lot when we're talking about uh, analytics in insurance. Can you perhaps explain a bit more about what the term modeling premiums means? Because it does come up on the podcast from time to time. So it'd be good to get uh, some of that context. 
Sure. And one of my and one thing I'm passionate about is is demystifying actuary work and expressing it in, in plain plain language. So you can tell me how I how I get on with that um, right now. Um, what we're really talking about is actuarial pricing models. Uh, so forecasting losses that captives may be expected to incur to different degrees of probability. So saying what you know what what, what kind of losses can you expect in a in an average year, a bad year, a catastrophic year. And based on this, we can calculate the long term average loss cost to the captive from which they can work out what they need to charge to fund the risk over the long term and what kind of buffer they may need to build into that premium in order to to account for the potential volatility. In terms of why it's important, there's actually a couple of elements to this. From purely the captive perspective, the first thought has to be about premium adequacy, which is just simply a good underwriting practice, ensuring that the premiums are sufficient to fund the risk over the long term. That's something that's been straightforward Historically, perhaps traditional high-frequency risks like employers' liability, workers' comp, marine cargo, where you just got tons of data and it's very, very stable. But where it's a bit trickier, perhaps, is in those those risks where losses are less predictable, emerging risks, or perhaps in traditional risks where but where captives are writing higher limits, which is something we're seeing now because of of the hard market and there is that added potential for those large losses. So that's where the modelling of the risk can sort of increases in in importance. The second part of that really is around uh, demonstrating a fair price from a transfer transfer pricing perspective, which is, I think, quite important for captives uh, right now. You know, typically captives have, have always used benchmarks or followed perhaps fronting prices, but that may, may not always be applicable, may not be comparable for various reasons. And I think having a modeled view uh, of your own premiums provides an extra line of defense when it comes to that. There is actually a second part of your question, which perhaps was was not necessarily foreseen, but a byproduct of the analysis is about modeling of reinsurance premiums. Because you're you're just modeling the risk, you can then look at any layer of the insurance. So you model the captive premium, but also model the reinsurance premium, which provides a load of additional benefits, actually, from the captive perspective, because it gives you that view on whether or not you're paying a fair price for your reinsurance, whether you have the right limits, um, whether that price can be renegoti- renegotiated and therefore whether or not there's an opportunity to perhaps change the captive program around to offer greater value for money in general. So there's probably a few, a few parts to that, the, the modeling of premium element. Yeah, and I think I'll say you did a very good job, Dave, on uh, on doing that explanation <laughs> for us and, and demystifying uh, some of these terms. And I certainly need that from, from time to time. When you mentioned at the very top, and I think a lot of this will come back to the topic of optimizing the use of capital, uh, capital optimization. And I think that's becoming increasingly important at the moment as corporates turn more and more to their captives in this hard market to take on more risk, whether it's existing lines with high retentions or take on new lines. Where can most captives generally improve when it comes to capital optimization. Are there easy wins that many captives aren't already considering or implementing? I think there's a, there's a scale here in increasing complexity, um, as, as you can imagine. The, the, the easy wins, really, I mean, obviously what we see is that captives, most of them, they loan loan money back to group uh, where they can. They, they, they tend to take maximum availability for that in order to not type the group capital but beyond that then it, it gets it gets quite interesting um first thing is it was probably an observation we talk about optimizing capital i actually don't think many captives probably understand what their return on capital is i actually don't know what the expected return on, on the capital that they're putting behind the captive is which certainly in this this tough environment 
driven by COVID and 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 in, you know and 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 so on. I think every little helps, and certainly where finance is is looking more closely at captives, I think being able to demonstrate that you are enhancing the return on capital is is a good thing to be able to do. But back to the back to the question. I mean, fundamentally, the easy win. I think you captured it in your question. Would be taking on more risk, uh, sweat the capital um, harder, and in the hard market, companies are crying out. For, for extra capacity and, and captives are obviously the place for that. I'd advise to try and do it in a considered fashion. Um, we've seen a lot of captives lately plugging gaps on programs, uh, perhaps you know taking higher excess layers just to just to fill the gap almost at the last minute, which is from a capital perspective perhaps not the not optimal because typically you're taking on a lot of retention without capturing much much premium. So we would say you know try and be try and be as strategic about it as as possible and, and do it that way. Um, sort of increasing of the scale in terms of complexity, really diversification um, is your friend. I always used to say, you know, it's the only free lunch you get in investment and it's exactly the same for insurance. You know, add uncorrelated risks to your captive. So are there other group risks that you can you can incorporate in your captive in order to potentially increase the risk in your captive with minimal or indeed no increases in the amount of capital that you actually have to put in uh, the captive. Just as an example of that, if you need a million of capital to write your property program and a million of capital to write your marine program, then you won't need two million of capital to write, to write the both on because of that diversification. It'd probably be you know, around 1.3, 1.4 million. And that principle only grows the more and more classes of risk you put into your captive. So uh, I think we're seeing more of that is using diversification. It's, it's, it's there. It's how insurers operate. Uh, and we're seeing more captives trying to take advantage of that um, too. The other thing that can be incorporated into that is, is to look at the portfolio view, all of your classes of risk at the same time. And this is something that technology has really made possible uh, over the last few years. So, so not just taking advantage of diversification, but potentially arbitraging between um, where insurance markets are offering good value for money and different value for money. So it may be that you can increase the return on capital in the captive by just simply writing more risk in one class of risk uh, and more of another class of risk, just to take account of the fact that one of those classes of risk is less capital intensive and another perhaps is cheaper to transfer uh, to the insurance market. And looking at that is something that technology um, has really made possible because looking at all those possible combinations of programs uh, would have been impossible uh, a few years ago. I think that the last one that I would, I would touch on is around investment strategy. And I think this is somewhere that so the first two points I mentioned, I think captives are starting to do, uh, doing, are doing quite a lot of. Investment strategy, I think, is still one area where captives are leaving uh, a lot on the table with overly conservative investment strategies, mainly in cash, very short-term liquid assets that are gaining almost no returns. And I think certainly as captives grow, I think there are certainly opportunities for captives to learn a few lessons from perhaps the pensions market and, and look at asset and allocation um, exercises that, that could yield additional returns, again, without necessarily increasing the amount of capital that needs to be held. And I think that's something that we're talking about a lot at the minute and we could see captives looking at a bit more in the future. Yeah, really, really interesting. All, all of that, Dave. And I thought particularly interesting, one of the first comments you made there regarding 
using captives to, to plug gaps in programs, re- maybe relatively last minute in a renewal process and, and that not being, that being suboptimal, you know, as a way of using your capital. And I think we are seeing a lot of that. I definitely hear a lot of that anecdotally from captive owners that I speak to who there's a, there's a panic, right? At the end of a renewal because of the market conditions and they, they're almost faced with no choice, but perhaps the prep work could have been done a lot earlier to understand how we can use this capital. And I think that's something people like yourself and others have been saying for a long time that, a bit like people trying to form a captive now to tackle the hard market. They've probably missed the boat. Uh, they're not going to tackle this hard market with their captive getting formed tomorrow. But it's interesting that kind of planning ahead, understanding how you want to use your captive. So when you do might need to turn to it last minute, you'll know what kind of what your position is. I guess related to that to a degree, though, as captives become larger, as you've touched upon, and we know there are you know, maybe not lots and lots and lots of them, but there are a good number of captives now that can be, you know, comparable in size to mid-market commercial insurers when it comes to growth written premium or assets under management. Is there a danger that as these large captives become more, more bigger, um, they fall into some of the same traps that many large commercial insurers have done with regards to, you know, cumbersome legacy portfolios and, and, and balance sheets, which are kind of getting out of their control? I mean, definitely, uh, I would say to that, there's, there's a few probably more operational issues uh, to that, but also from a capital perspective, and I think it's, it's, a, it's important to understand the moving parts. I mean, I touched on investment strategy in my response to the last question, and I think, first of all, with a bigger balance sheet, you've got a, a much bigger asset portfolio that if you're, not, if you're not doing something a bit more, or a bit less conservative with, you know, certainly from the CFO's perspective, you're leaving money on the table there. So I think it, there's a re- definitely a need to look at that investment strategy and, and perhaps undertake some kind of asset allocation review. Now, from a capital perspective, uh, I think it gets uh, it gets quite interesting because, of course, larger balance sheets require more capital. And specifically, when it comes to Solvency 2, there's actually quite a few quirks of, of Solvency 2, which means that holding lots of reserves um, is very capital inefficient. Simply reserve risk, you know, you could be having to hold 30% of your reserves as capital, simply the risk that the, these reserves um, develop adversely. Uh, also, there's an operational risk charge, which can, can cost quite a lot of capital, which is related to the, the amount of reserves, even if these reserves are, are reinsured. Uh, so it might be that the, the net exposure to the captive is small, but from a capital perspective, it, it's quite expensive. So all of these things they do. They can be can become issues. Uh, I think the the solutions to these are probably quite quite well trodden. Things like undertaking reserve reviews, claim reviews, making sure there's no fat in those reserves, anything you can free up there, which will obviously also support collateral conversations. And of course, things like portfolio transfers uh, and buyouts or commutations back to the balance sheet. So I think there's, I think the the the, the toolkit. Is probably is probably understood, but there's definitely quite a lot of operational issues that need to be thought about. Yeah, and those that last point regarding kind of innovations and commutations, and you know, our listeners should be very familiar with those as R and Q are our, our headline uh, sponsor for the last couple of years, and we hear from them regularly, so we should be all up to speed on that. So we're going to come back to Dave and get further into the ancillary benefits of analytics, and maybe touch on other alternative risk transfer solutions as well. But now let's hear from our captive owner for the episode, Janae's Markland, Director of Business Risk and Insurance at Facebook. Janae's goes on to explain why Facebook has recently gone down the captive route, but starts by telling us a bit about her background and role at the social network.
So about 10 years ago, I started to work on enterprise risk management at Pacific Gas and Electric Company, and it was following a large pipeline explosion. And so there was a need for the company to get deep into the operations and build a more grassroots, bottoms-up operational risk management program. And the concept was really interesting to me. So I essentially volunteered to participate in that effort. And that turned into a 10-year passion project for me. About uh, five years into that, the uh, insurance role became available as well. And so my CRO at the time convinced me to add that, even though I really didn't know a single thing about insurance, convinced <laughs> me that he would help me through. <laughs> and so I, I said, sure, and uh, started managing the insurance portfolio for PG&E. And that was just ahead of, you know, year back-to-back uh, wildfires and extreme difficulties in basically every market <laughs> that you can imagine. And uh, managed to get through um, some very difficult years on the insurance front and, you know, we were making a lot of progress on the Enterprise Risk Program. We were doing some creative things on insurance. And I was actually quite happy doing what I was doing at PG&E. But Facebook reached out and had this opportunity that sounded interesting in a company that had a completely different risk profile than what I was used to. And I thought to myself, you know, I'd been at PG&E for 20 years. And if I was going to make a move, now would be the time. And what better way than to completely change things up and move to a completely different industry uh, with a whole new risk profile and, and try to do something there with respect to risk and insurance. And so that was about a year ago, <laughs> right as COVID started to ramp up. And um, yeah, it's been a it's been a wild ride so far. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because we don't get to talk, to be honest, with our uh, interviewees much about career progression. And, and it's it's so true what you kind of outlined there, Janae, is that so many of those professionals who get into insurance management of, of the risk side um, do kind of stumble, in, stumble into it, as you said. Uh, they don't set out in, on that path originally. And, and, and as you said, you know, going from you know, a gas company to Facebook is as big a change as you could possibly do, particularly in, in the size of companies involved. Uh, so that that is really interesting. I can see why you'd see that as a fascinating new challenge. I understand, uh, and, we, and we kind of revealed in the magazine a, a month or so ago that Facebook has formed a, a captive in Hawaii, uh, formed in December at the end of 2020, uh, which I, I find really exciting just because of the nature of Facebook as a company, but also you know, Hawaii seems to attract lots of the kind of Silicon Valley and, and West Coast companies. What was the initial prompt then, Janae, that, that sent you and, and Facebook down this route? So I joined, like I said, about a year ago in April. And one of the first things that was on everybody's mind, but nobody had really a lot of time to devote to it, was developing a captive for the purposes of providing a global standard of employee benefits. So because Facebook's obviously a global company with employees in a lot of different regions, there are a variety of different employee benefits that are available and they're not consistent from region to region. Yeah. And so the idea was to be able to enhance benefits in some areas, to be able to offer coverages that we wanted to that maybe weren't necessarily available in the commercial market. And so the employee benefits was the primary driver of, of starting the captive for that purpose, for the purposes of improving employee benefits and employee experience. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to hear employee benefits being the driver of a new captive um, as, as for so long we, we've seen it more in the context of EB being added to an existing PNC captive. So uh, it's really interesting to hear that. And I think we'll probably see more examples of that as we do see these very fast growing, particularly technology companies that have a big emphasis on people rather than kind of 
other tangible assets such as property and 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 other areas um, i think we'll see that happen more what stage are you at then with regards to onboarding uh, countries to the captive epre program and and the process of that obviously the captive is is in place since december where are you at, where are you up to now uh, interestingly, we we started actually our first policy that we placed was in December. It was a property policy, a small placement, excess of our existing coverage. And we did that so that we could get a year of completed financials and would set us on track to start working on U.S. benefits into the captive as well. The Department of Labor requires a year of audited financials. And so it was important for us to place that first risk in 2020 so that we could get a bit of a leg up in that process. In terms of the original mandate, which was employee benefits, sort of rest of world, uh, we are just starting. So we've selected our fronting partner, our pooling network, and we have started to negotiate individual contracts. We're about to place the first one. And I will tell you, I understand the theory of putting PNC first and establishing a bit of a buffer because right now we're in the tail end, hopefully, of COVID. And we're looking at placing life, accident, and disability, which previous to COVID was actually a fairly safe bet, had good experience, you know, decent margins, and was almost certainly to be profitable in the captive. And now there's this extra layer of uncertainty. So each contract we look at would have pre-COVID been an easy, sure, let's put it in. But we're taking a second look at a few of them because we're a little concerned that we don't want to end up having to ask our CFO for additional cash in the first year of operations after convincing uh, convincing him that it was a good idea to do it in the first place. So it's a it's a challenge. It's a more challenging than expected uh, first placements. So taking a broader picture look uh, of kind of PNC as well and and outside of the captive potentially. Does Facebook have a kind of defined risk financing? philosophy, uh, but, it, but it's trying to stick to? Yeah, so we're, we're building that as well right now. So I think when I first joined Facebook, my first question was, why do we have insurance at all? <laughs> because we have a very strong balance sheet. We have a very good risk profile when you look across the different exposures, not much experience in terms of claims. And so, you know, at what point does it not make sense? Why should we just take it on balance sheet? And so as we've kind of thought through that, the answer is yes, we certainly could take more risk, but we have to be careful and thoughtful about how we do that and, and what is the most efficient way to handle our, our risk transfer needs. So as my team's grown a little bit, we've had a few more resources to take a look at what can Facebook withstand in terms of an unexpected loss. And then if you put all of our aggregate exposures that we're currently transferring into the market together, what does that look like on an annual basis? Adding in a bit of a safety factor for the unknown or the sort of black swan or gray swan, I suppose, event. And then what kind of a captive um, buffer do we need as well to be able to keep our risk exposures below that risk tolerance threshold. And so we've been building decision trees as a team to figure out when should we transfer risk? When should we retain it on balance sheet? And if we decide to transfer it, when should it go to commercial markets versus our captive? And so right now we're back testing all of our 2020 decisions against that framework and coming to some discussions, mostly discussions about, okay, did that make sense to do that way last year? And how does that influence how we think about it this year? You know, it's it's uh, not an easy answer, obviously. <laughs> People have been transferring their risk into the commercial yeah. market because it's been uncertain for so long. But I think we do have an opportunity to maybe do a little bit less commercial risk financing and, and probably more with in the Facebook now family of risk transfer options. Really good to hear that. And it sounds like 
you're you're kind of on on that on that road to understanding where that kind of tolerance is and what should and shouldn't and to what level it should go into the captive if if at all and it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out over the next few years as the captive does grow it does grow uh, history does grow its own balance sheet and i'm sure you'll you'll find more opportunities to to use it and on and on that question in fact are you already then as you're building that decision tree are you already looking at well where can the captive uh, give you opportunities uh, that you previously didn't have outside of EB. Absolutely. So we have three goals for the captive. One is to be solvent. <laughs> the second one. Yeah, that's a good goal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the second one is to be efficient, and then the third one is to be helpful. And so, um, you know, that's in order of priority as well. If that's not obvious, but as we look at some of the. Th- ways we can leverage the captive for that helpful bit, presumably the solvent and the efficient is already thought through. We are looking at how can we use the captive to provide more certainty to the business when they're maybe uncertain around certain risks that they want to take, but you know, recognizing at a Facebook level, it's probably fine with respect to our stated risk tolerance, but on an individual department basis, maybe the leadership is uncomfortable with taking that risk. Is there something we can do about the captive there to provide a financing mechanism for things that are unexpected that doesn't necessarily come out of contingency spend that's already established? So that's one way we're thinking about being helpful. So lastly, uh, unfortunately, I can't let you go without asking you the uh, the H question, which is the hard market question. Uh, a, little, a little bit bored of asking it, but um, always I think it's <laughs> relevant to ask. Um, how much of an impact have you felt? I know that you've only joined in April 2020, but how much of an impact has, has the group felt from the hard market in its, in its insurance renewals? And how likely is it to influence decision making concerning uh, go, what goes into the captive? Yeah, so I I don't know that we are extremely impacted by the hard market in that we don't buy a lot of insurance relative to where I come from anyways. So the, the prices have been manageable. We did make some changes around our deductibles on our property program when we took some self-insured retentions last year on our liability program to somewhat mitigate the impact of the hard market. But again, that's not the biggest driver. I think we're still interested in transition or transferring risk into the commercial markets if it's efficient. And if it's not, that's where our captive can play a role. I will say that, you know, one of our first objective of the captive is being solvent. And in order to be solvent, you have to have some good view of what the risk looks like going forward. And I think that's a hard thing for technology companies in particular that are constantly innovating, constantly offering new services. Your risk exposure is also constantly changing. So past is not prologue in this scenario. It's difficult to be able to forecast risk. So I think we're a little bit nervous about putting into the captive right away and more inclined to pay a little more for commercial insurance. And so the hard market has been out there, but not necessarily a key driver of decisions. Yeah, interesting to hear hear that perspective. It's quite different from other perspective I've heard, and it probably matches up with the fact that Facebook is is quite a different company to the other companies we've had on to the Global Captive podcast in the past. So, Janae's, it's just left for me to say good luck uh, with the kind of current onboarding and ongoing onboarding of the EB program, and as the captive develops in the future. And I hope, Janae's, possibly maybe in two years' time, uh, we can have you back on the pod to hear how it's developed from from here. That would be great. I'm hoping to tell you it was wildly successful and we have a huge <laughs> amount of profit that we need to just figure out what to do with. <laughs> we can we can only hope. I'm sure I'm sure you'll get there, but uh, thank you for your time and uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks very much Richard. Take care. Pause. 
Paul, they say there's more than one way to skin a cat, and I believe that's also true of offloading legacy liabilities. Yes, Richard, it is. You don't need to sell or dispose of your captive to release capital back to the parent, or indeed to recycle it for future use in the captive. So what are the different options? Well, you can execute a lost portfolio transfer, which is a reinsurance structure, undertake an insurance business transfer, enter into novation or a deductible reimbursement policy. There's a whole range of solutions. And R&Q has experience in all of these types of transactions. Indeed, Richard, that's right. R&Q has completed over 70 legacy transactions with captive insurers and other self-insurance vehicles in traditional offshore jurisdictions, as well as those in the European Union and across the US. For the second year, R&Q is the headline partner for the Global Captive Podcast for 2020. You can find more information and contact details for their experts on globalcaptivepodcast.com. If you have legacy, you should contact R&Q. Well, thank you to Janae's Markland there for great insight into a quite unique company of course and the way they think about risk financing so i think it's going to be very very interesting to see how the facebook captive develops over the next couple of years and i think in today's we've got a good friend who will keep us informed as they go we will be back with dave stebbing again shortly but we are going to concentrate on captive claims for the next 10 minutes or so with james rayner global relationship leader with crawford and company claims is an area we've not really addressed to any great length on the pod before which is probably a massive oversight from my side so it was really good to catch up with James on this important topic and he begins by explaining some of the different types of relationships the claim specialists have with captives. Every client is different and that's part of the variety that makes my job so interesting. So within Crawford and Company, I sit within the global client development team, which manages the strategic relationships with global insurers, brokers and corporate clients, as well as our Lloyds and London market team. So if we're focusing on corporate clients for this discussion, a majority of the relationships are with the corporate's risk manager or insurance manager along with the captive managers, which can be in various domiciles. I work closely with several US-based multinationals, but they would have their uh, captives in Ireland, Bermuda, Hawaii, various different locations. We do have some captive clients that have dedicated employees, underwriting managers, claims managers, claims teams. I've seen it most in Europe, but it depends on the size of the captive and their philosophy. So as well as our relationship with the risk and insurance manager, we can find ourselves interacting with the corporate's legal team, treasury, health and safety. And this can differ on a regional basis, country level, or between different subsidiaries. The wider matrix of relationships on a captive program extends to include the brokers, which can be different for different lines of business, fronting insurers, excess layer insurers, reinsurers, plus other consultants used by the corporate. We have to understand and respond to the requirements of all stakeholders, which will vary depending on the nature of the program. We work with clients that have over 10,000 claims a year and others that may only have one or two. But even on those low frequency accounts, you need to have an understanding of the key parties and have protocols in place. You touched upon, obviously, sometimes there are there can be claims managers at, the, at these larger captives. Can captives kind of manage claims on their own or purely just rely on the fronting partners of their program? And, and what advantages does involving a, a, a TPA in the, in the program bring? Again, we see every combination. So 
where a captive can write direct, we can work direct for them and interacting with if they have their own people, claims teams and other specialists. But with this can be as a nominated a loss adjuster or as a third party administrator TPA. And people will know our brand Broadspire as a leading player in this sector. On our global programs, a captive will often use a fronting partner in some or all countries depending on the domicile, regulatory requirements, and the insurance products involved. There are many advantages of using a TPA to the corporate customer and to the fronting insurer. The ability to provide a customized claims program supporting the risk management strategy is number one as as far as I'm concerned. We also provide flexibility of program structure or even the fronting partner or carriers can change year on year, but we can deliver a consistent process and cost control. We have the capability uh, to work in multi-currencies, reporting in local and master currencies, as well as managing multiple loss funds. We can adapt our system to collect data specific to the client's operations, loss types, cause codes, location codes, all specific to the insured's business, even capturing specific product information. If we can give our clients data relevant to their operations, it's far easier for them to share and add value to their business. We look to deliver the risk management insight through data and analytics, reporting at a portfolio level down to individual claims. Uh, If you also add our experience through the handling of the claims, we can identify trends or opportunities for deeper investigation. Uh, It's not just an increase in certain types of claims, It can be why does one country or part of the business have these claims and another doesn't. The data identifies areas of opportunity and establishes benchmarks for comparison and improvement. Our ability to issue trigger alerts for designated claim types, values, sensitive cases, media and social media interests, etc. is also of great value to the clients. We can import their data into our data warehouse and incorporate other external data to provide powerful insights. With some clients, we present to the captive board meetings or risk committees, and we're also involved in the underwriting and policy wording reviews, becoming integrated into the captive service. There's a couple of particular interesting points I'll just pick out. One was presenting to the board. We obviously know we hear so much more about captive boards becoming a bit more rigorous, a bit more professional and looking for more of that kind of outside input. So I presume, I imagine that's the kind of area that more captive boards will be looking for that input down the line. And then on the data, I mean, we hear so much about captives being used to incubate new or emerging risks. And I'm always interested to hear about a bit more about how that actually works. So how involved do you get at Crawford when captives do do this? They use their captive to kind of understand a new risk and while being able to insure it to some degree. Presumably you're involved in collecting and making sense of some of those claims so they can then be understood further down the line? Uh, yes, this, I mean, this is something we are seeing more of and our capabilities have evolved significantly to support captives in this area. So my own personal experiences would include uh, a captive that wanted to add new coverage to an existing policy to provide greater support to their end customers. For another, the parent corporate was moving into a completely new way of providing their service through strategic partnerships. With both, we were able to add new claim types and new sets of data that allowed them to understand the risks, potential claims, and anything related so that we could then come back and review progress and how it was providing impact on the captive in terms of claims or activity. 
we provided regular commentary on the issues that were coming up. And if needed, we were able to collect new or different data to support the understanding and the underwriting of those risks. Another example would be the work we're doing in the sharing economy and the new mobility sector. There's some really creative underwriting in this area, and we're able to capture additional claims data to allow a captive or their partner underwriters to go into new levels of analysis combined with the data that they can get from the parent business. You mentioned, James, at the very beginning that obviously every client and every captive is, is different. And we hear that in, a, in a lots of different areas. How does the philosophy or, or claims management policy and culture differ between captives? Because presumably the captives, different captives have different priorities. They're used in different ways, whether it's profit centers or, or cost centers. Are there some captives where you kind of, uh, it's seen as a brand protection approach to involve a TPA and others where they want to be a bit more flexible? Yes, I mean, this completely depends on the nature of the organization and the risks that they are covering. Remember that not all captive programs are compulsory. So the level of service that we provide can be an important factor in the decision for part of an operations to choose the captives offering. For our clients in retail, hospitality and sharing economy, a third party claimant is often one of their customers. So we're working within the framework of policy coverage, obviously, and legal liability but almost as an extension of their customer services. Our service can even be white labeled as the claims department of the parent or the captive company. We still need our discipline and expertise on fraud, policy coverage, quant and quantum to meet the captives or the fronting insurers regulatory obligations, but we are able to tailor that service and be completely flexible to the nature of the customers that they're servicing. Another aspect of brand protection is also captives flexibility to take a stance to defend a claim when in other circumstances, it might be more economical to settle and close the file. I mean, this can help prevent a client becoming a target for claims farmers because a reputation of being an easy payer can quickly spread and you want to try and block those out from certain sources. Just lastly, then, um, I think a few times you've obviously referenced kind of multi-line captives, international program captives that might have high frequency of claims. How is working with those captives that might have just one but very significant, possibly catastrophic claim each year? What kind of how do you compare those two situations and what's your role when you're working with a captive that might have one very specific purpose? Yes, we also have many clients that when the phone rings, we know it's going to be something big or high profile. The work with these clients usually starts long before there is an actual claim. When we're the nominated loss adjuster, our global te technical services team will be usually involved in a pre-loss planning meeting with the captive, fronting insurers, sometimes even excess layer or reinsurers, broker, key contacts from within the parent organization. And they have the, they meet to walk through the program structure how the business will respond and the expectations of all parties. A review of a business continuity plan and sharing experiences is always very useful. I mean, our sector specialists will have been through many scenarios before, and it's not really just trying to scare people, but we can share the experiences that we've been through and use our expertise to help mitigate losses for them in the future. This can extend to uh, formal claim scenario workshops, testing the policy wording, disaster response plan, roles and responsibilities, expected timelines, requirements for interim payments for cash flow, et cetera. Prompt interim payments is one area where a captive can be proactive in supporting their policyholder once coverage is accepted. And understanding the supply chain, 
designated contractors and key customers is all part of this discussion. When the large loss does occur, it's a stressful time for the policyholder, but all the pre-loss work should mean that they understand the process, communication routes are in place, and there can be a team approach from all the experts needed. Welcome back to episode 51 of the Global Captive Podcast, where I'm joined by Dave Stebbing from Willis Towers Watson. We have spoken about capital optimization and premium modeling. What are some of the other ancillary benefits of uh, captives embracing analytics? Uh, it's, a, it's a good good question, Richard. I think even before you know, we talk about the financial benefits um, in terms of you know, return on capital and so on, I think the main one I would touch on is really around enhanced risk management and understanding of risk. For example, being able to understand the likelihood of limits breaching, needing to recapitalize, the ability to, to repay dividends. Expressing risk in financial language, like I say, return on capital probabilities, value at risk, that elevates the department um, to the CFO level, which I think, you know, from a captive perspective, it, it is very positive. It gives you a clearer view on, on risk appetite and tolerance, you know, being able to link your loss projections to, to probabilities. I think that also, you know, in the context of the broader group's risk, risk management strategy, and from a pure captive perspective, it enhances the underwriting process. Should we write this risk? What price should we write it at? Which also, and which also, if you think about it, feeds into the ORSA, which is a, you know one of the key components of the, of the capital regime is around a board developing its own understanding of risk uh, and risk modeling can support all of that. So everything I've sort of just touched on is really around enhanced governance and risk financing. And I think you know, from my own experience, what we've seen is that once captives have that, it's like turning a light on uh, in a room. You, you you just don't go back and turn that light switch off again because of that that enhanced um, enhanced understanding. Probably a second in a different direction. I think a big benefit is around innovation and and, and specifically alternative risk transfer solutions, which is you know coming to the fore at the minute in the hard market. You know, the more common examples would be things like multi-line, multi-year stock losses, but then more exotic ones that we're seeing now are things like parametric solutions or structured solutions. And the key to all of these is that they have to be modelled in order to be priced. You know, the traditional the, the traditional approach just doesn't doesn't really work for these. So I think you know analytics is acting as a gateway to more capacity in in, in that area. Uh, we've also seen seen things like captives clubbing together to create mutuals and accessing reinsurance capacity to, together. So I think analytics is is a big driver in innovation uh, in captives. Yeah, it's interesting that last point you make about captives coming together to produce mutuals very common in the smaller 8.1b world for different reasons which we won't go into and it's that's not really what you're talking about i don't think but i'm definitely hearing more interest in in that from the larger captive accounts particularly in this hard market particularly around some financial lines uh, which have been particularly problematic and it's a kind of thing again going back to a point about it might be too late for this market but you'd like to think if there's some more foresight going forward some of these large corporates could be looking to use the power of their captive and each other's uh, good risk management to, to pull risks in a, in a more efficient way. I don't know if that's kind of what you're getting at. No, that's exactly what I'm getting at. Um, I, the hard market will be here for a while. The hard market will hit, be here for a while. I don't think you know people have necessarily missed the boat, but a lot of it is not just about pricing at the minute. It is purely about finding capacity. Uh, and there's yeah. such a dearth of that at the minute. I think that that's become almost the biggest driver uh, at this point. 
most of the conversation has been around data and it's a term that people just use a lot, collect better data, you know, use data to, to enhance kind of analytics um, of your captive. What, what data are we talking about? What data can captives do a better job of capturing to bring about some of these benefits you talk about? Yeah, I'm actually quite positive on this one. Normal renewal data is really all that suffices. Uh, and captives tend to have this already. And, uh, you know, there's question marks about systems and whether they can be, you know, brought, brought perhaps more into the 21st century and, and uh, you know, easier to pull reports and so on. But on the face of it, the data is already there. It, it's, it's claims data, exposure information, program structures. Um, obviously, for depending on what you're trying to achieve, you need you perhaps need a view on the reinsurance, things like the reinsurance pricing and, and the, the options that are out there. But in order to undertake the primary analysis, it, it's already there. There should be no stumbling blocks or no sort of uh, barriers to entry for any captives in that regard, which I think is, is quite a positive, actually. It shouldn't hold people back. So you talked about, I liked your analogy about the light switch being turned on in, in the boardroom of the captive when you kind of go down more of this approach. How much do you think captives and their, more importantly, their parent organisations are leaving on the table currently by not going down uh, this approach how much more powerful and viable a role can the captive be playing for their corporate parents if if some of these steps are taken i mean i think hugely since i, I mean i've been at willis tazelson for for 10 years now and it's it, it's really been exponential uh, i have to say that the growth growth of analytics and like i say it because those captives who use analytics that, that they don't go back whether it's uh, increasing that return on capital, writing more risks, or fundamentally just changing the role of captives uh, within the group. It's, um, it's been a real evolution, um, I think, in, in the captive world. Around five years ago, I think, interestingly, probably because of the, the soft, you know, the markets, uh, and also that, you know, from a transfer, transfer pricing scrutiny, uh, captives have had to reinvent themselves. Uh, you know, a few years ago, because of the soft market, captives were, they weren't writing risks. A lot of them were being mothballed. Uh, and those that did stick around were, were finding reasons to, to stay alive. And they were doing that because they were, you know, writing new risks and, and, and you know, things like even third party, third party risks and so on. But now with the hard market in conjunction with that, I think captives are, are going through a real growth, a growth strategy, even without the analytics. You know, the number of feasibility studies and, and new captives that are being formed is, is off the charts at the minute. Uh, I think that's probably testament to, to the opportunities that are out there. Yeah, I think it's almost like captives had to go through an identity crisis to kind of rediscover themselves. And, and then, as you say, the hard market is kind of re-emphasized the, the need for them. And, and I'm delighted that's the case. I'm sure you're delighted that's the case, as uh, much of our living uh, d depends on captives being relevant and, uh, and continuing <laughs> to be successful. Um, but anyway, that is all we have time for today. I hope listeners agree that was a really informative and nicely varied episode. And I think actually, with regards to having Dave and Janae's and, and James on what the Global Captive Podcast is all about, giving listeners lots of different perspectives and insight and, and bringing these captive stories to life. So thank you to Janae's Markland at Facebook and to James Rayner of Crawford & Company. And of course, to you, David Stebbin from Willis Towers Watson. Thank you for coming onto the pod. Thank you, Richard. I really enjoyed it. Fantastic. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives. <laughs>